0: The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm J.J. Johnson. Jason is off tonight. He's a little bit under the weather, so I am uh, flying solo. But we've got a great show, so it's not going to be a problem. We've got a couple of guests tonight. We're going to talk about two very, very fascinating topics. The first one will be with Frank Joseph. And Frank has been on the program a couple of times already. In fact, he was here in October talking about uh, his most recent book called Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials. But he's written a lot about history and ancient America. And we're going to talk about Oak Island for the first hour of the program. Because tomorrow night, Tuesday night, is the premiere of Season 6 of The Curse of Oak Island on History Channel. And it's a program that Jason and I have paid a lot of attention to. It's fun. It's interesting. The whole Oak Island mystery is fascinating, and we're going to talk about that mystery and what uh, Frank thinks is hidden below the surface of Oak Island, if anything, and what uh, the Lagina brothers, who are the focus of the TV show Curse of Oak Island, may find once they actually uh, find something. And um, again, that premieres tomorrow night for season six, and we're going to talk about that in the first hour. Of the program. The second hour of the program will be dedicated to hauntings at Universal Studios. Now, we all have heard of some of these movie lots being haunted by actors and actresses from the golden age of Hollywood. Well, there's some truth to these things, at least the reports. There's truth to the reports. And Brian Clune has written a book about them. Um, he's written several other books about uh, hauntings and ghost stories. And we're going to have Brian on the program in the second half to talk about Universal Studios and what's going on there. What are the employees seeing? What are guests seeing? What studios are haunted? Who are they haunted by? What are all these stories? We're going to get into the bottom of that. We'll also take your phone calls later at 844-687-7669. Now, anybody who has been aware <laughs> at all over the past hmm, 10 years, maybe even 15, maybe it's 20. I actually think it goes back to the point where Batman with Michael Keaton was a movie that was successful, directed by Tim Burton. What year was that? In the 90s sometime, right? Like 90, maybe late, I don't know, 93, 92, somewhere in there. That movie was a hit, and it seemed to start us on a course of superhero movies that uh, continues to this day. And the man who is responsible for more of those superheroes and more of those successes than any other person is Stanley and Stanley passed today at the age of 95 years old lived a long, very long, uh, healthy, good life. However, um, during that time, he created some of what we would consider now to be the most iconic of our pop culture icons. Like Spider-Man, The Hulk, The Avengers, Black Panther, Daredevil, Doctor Strange, and many, many others. The Fantastic Four, X-Men. All of these things are just embedded in our pop culture these days. But they weren't that way a mere 20 years ago. This is a recent phenomenon. I would actually call the last 10 to 15 years the years of Stan Lee. I think he had more influence on our pop culture than anybody. He's, he's called by some as the father of pop culture. And his legacy will live on. He passed away at the age of 95 today. Rest in peace, Stanley. You have entertained us all, all. You're your creative genius, and uh, we will respect your work and what you've done for entertainment for many, many years to come. So anyway, so we've got a great show lined up for you. Um, in addition to that, I'd like you to stop by the website. It is going to be holiday shopping time very, very soon. And one of the neatest things you can get, people, on your holiday shopping list is a Beyond Reality Radio coffee mug. Or you can call it a tea mug. Or it can be a pencil holder. Whatever you want it to do, it'll serve the purpose. And it's right on the website, beyondrealityradio.com. Just click on the picture of the mug, and you can order them right there. Uh, Domestic shipping is included in the price. If you're ordering from overseas or across borders, we will uh, have a way for you to contact us so we can work out shipping, because it's a little more complicated when you do that. But those mugs make a great gift for anybody on your Christmas list. Also, hey, stop by my uh, Facebook page and give it a like. We're going to get those numbers up there. I'm at JVJ Paranormal, or if you just search JV Johnson, you'll find it as well. But I'd love to have you uh, stop by my page, give it a like so you can keep track of what's going on. I post a lot of weird stuff. Don't want to miss it. In fact, most people that read my stuff say, what the heck does that mean? That's what makes it fun, right? Um, so do those things for me and, uh, I'll appreciate that. Let's see, let's, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll bring in our first guest of the evening. Again, it's Frank Joseph. We'll start the program with us and we'll talk about Oak Island and the premiere of season six of the curse of Oak Island tomorrow night on the history channel. It's beyond reality radio. This episode is brought to you by visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. Anyway, welcome back to the program, everybody. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm JV. Uh, Jason is off tonight. He's not feeling well. He's under the weather. Um, I just want to thank the chat room for pointing out that the Batman film that I've mentioned as being the film that kind of launched this, what we would consider wave of superhero movies, was in 1989 with Michael Keaton and, of course, uh, directed by Tim Burton. I think that kind of set the stage. It took a while for it to really catch on, but... Um, But uh, it did catch on, and Stan Lee was uh, probably the most influential person of that whole uh, phase. And I don't think it's just a phase because it continues to this day. So, once again, rest in peace, Stan Lee. Tonight, we're going to be talking with a couple of guests. A little late in the program, we've got Brian Clune joining us to talk about the hauntings at Universal Studios. But our first guest is uh, actually a guest that we had on not long ago. Frank Joseph is an author. His website is ancientamerican.com. Frank, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. It's great to have you back so soon.
1: Thank you. It was very kind of you for inviting me.
0: Well, it's, it's kind of, I remember when we had you on, I think it was uh, early October when you were with us last, and we were talking about your book, Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials. And during the course of our conversations, the topic of Oak Island came up a couple of times. I remember that distinctly. And when uh, Jason and I were talking, we saw that the premiere of Season 6 of The Curse of Oak Island on the History Channel is tomorrow night, Tuesday night, um, it got us kind of excited because we both like the program, love the mystery and the story behind Oak Island, and thought you'd be a great person to bring onto the program to talk a little bit about this. So let's um, let's open the discussion. For in case someone isn't aware of what the story is behind Oak Island, what makes it uh, so intriguing? Why don't we start by talking about that a little bit?
1: Okay, well, uh, for those of our listeners not familiar with this, although I imagine most of them are, or many of them are, in any case, it involves a very small island uh, that's only something like about 100, some, about 160 acres. Um, it's um, in uh, off the coast of Nova Scotia. I mean right off the coast, 660 feet off the coast. A causeway has since been made so that you can just drive out there instead of paddling out. And it's in Mahone Bay which uh, has about 360 other islands, so it's a pretty obscure little place. And sometime in the late uh, 1700s, um, rumor began circulating that there was a treasure buried somewhere on this little island, and so uh, amateur treasure hunters were going out there uh, from the, the late 1700s on. Um, of course, there was a little thing that got in the way called the American Revolution. <laughs> sort <it> of <laughs> disrupted things for a while, and the British were interested in that area. But the first real serious... Um uh, quest for this uh, alleged treasure uh, began about 1799 or 1801. Nobody is sure for exactly when, when uh, there was uh, some first real serious look for this treasure. And I'm not going to go through the whole history of uh, the search for this thing, but it got to be very serious, serious to the point where people lost their lives. Literally millions of dollars have been sunk into the quest for this treasure uh, by both amateurs and professionals. Uh, You've had some very famous people involved, like President Franklin Delano Roosevelt before he became president. He was actually a hands-on excavator there. He was seriously involved for a number of years. Um, Admiral Richard E. Byrd, which was the greatest polar explorer of all time, he was involved. Uh, people like Errol Flynn and so forth. So there's some really big names associated with this place. And this little island, which has attracted all these people over the years, the treasure, if there ever was anyone down there, has never been found. But a lot. I mean, we're talking about a profuse collection of very provocative evidence has come to light over the past uh, 220-some years, and especially thanks to these two brothers, the Lagina brothers, uh, who are to be given terrific credit for putting their money where their mouth was, and a lot of money, millions of dollars. And they've come up with a terrific collection of fascinating material, which is kind of bewildering. But nonetheless, I think that they are well on the way to identifying The the four questions that they posed at the beginning of their quest for it, who, what, when, and how was this mystery um, developed? And I don't know about the how end, but I think I have some clues uh, to these other questions. I've been following this enigma myself from the sidelines. I've never been to Oak Island. Um, they're, They're the guys that are doing all the hard work. I'm just sitting on my keister trying to put these (laughs) things together, but I'm applying the same historical regimen that I apply to my my other work. And um, that historical regimen is this. I do not begin with a theory at all. I begin with the physical hard evidence, the facts, not speculation, not legend, nothing like that, but what you can really hold in your hands, the reality. And then from the facts only, a theory will emerge. That's the only kind of theory or point of view that seems to be really worthwhile, that's suggested by the material itself. And um, I'm very excited about this as as much as uh, you are. And uh, I think I've got... uh, I don't have the final answers. I don't pretend that. I want to see the rest of the series that's going to be playing over the next few weeks, I, I am preparing an article for the Barnes Review, which is a very important historical magazine published in Washington, D.C., and that article, that I have to have that submitted by uh, the first of the year. So I'm, I'm waiting to see what else is brought to light. But meanwhile, I'm doing my homework, and I've been investigating this for quite some time. I wrote an article which is published in my recent book. It's called Power Places, and there's a short chapter on Oak Island, and um it's it's based somewhat on that. But my evidence the evidence that's coming out is shaping that theory. It's changing it. So uh, rather than monologuing anymore, I I hope I've made it somewhat clear to our listeners what's going on here.
0: Yeah, you know, that's nuts and bolts of it for sure. We've got a few minutes before we have to go to break here. But one of the things that I find fascinating, and I find it also interesting that uh, the Lagina brothers, as they tell their story and how they became interested in the island, I think it was a Reader's Digest article that they read as a kid in the 60s, maybe. And yeah. I I remember um, being in one of my science classes in it was probably junior high, not even high school, maybe junior high. And our science teacher handed out a reprint of that article and said, hey, can oh, you can great. you figure out this mystery? And at that point I was bitten. Now, what makes it fascinating, one of the many things that makes it fascinating is that when it was first discovered, it was, I think it was a, a bunch of kids who saw a light on the island and they went over to investigate it and where they saw the light, there was no longer a light, but there was like a block and tackle in a tree that was hanging over a bit of a depression in the ground. They started digging and they started to find these uh, planks or these platforms, which were uh, comprised of, I think, uh, I don't know if it was oak, but some kind of wood, uh, um, what do you call them, not, not branches or something that created a platform every 10 feet and every step of the way, they would find another uh, what would be considered some type of artifact or relic uh, pointing to the fact that there was treasure if they kept going. But one of the frustrating things, Frank, is that much of that material, there's no photographic evidence of it, and it's disappeared in the course of history.
1: Well, that part of it, I've been able to sort out. That is definitely uh, fantasy. That oh, okay. is not uh, correct.
0: Which
2: part uh, of There it?
1: weren't these kids that followed the lighter. That that did not take place. Oh, okay. That is part of the, the legend that's going up. Oh. Um, however, there is some value in that story. and It is just a story because it reflects the uh, rumors That were going around about people who, very interestingly, why was it that of all those three hundred and sixty some islands in Mahone Bay, why is it that this teeny little obscure island was singled out for all these rumors of treasure hunting? No, the the story about the block and tackle and so on—that is all. uh, It's a total fantasy. I can't explain how I know that. In in our little interview here, it would take up too much of our time, and I think we have better things to talk about. But and that's not really. That important. The important thing is is that uh, a fellow by the name of McGinnis. Uh, he definitely. Didn't I wouldn't say it's a scientific expedition he launched, but it was a very reasonable one, and he's the one that did the first real work. And the reason why he did it, he didn't see any block and tackle hanging from a branch and all that. that that's just that's fancy. But he, what he did see was an unusual depression in the land that he had recently purchased, and that depression looked to him as though it was something uh, had been intentionally buried there. And that's why he went there. He didn't see any block and tackle or anything like that. And he he began digging because he thought that this depression looked unnatural. He was correct. And when he did dig down, yes, indeed, he found under only two feet. He didn't have to dig very deeply. Two feet down, he found a paving stones that were set in and he recognized immediately that this was not a natural formation this is the same type of work that he himself had made He thought well that's really interesting so he pried up the paving stones and he continued to dig and he found out and make a long story short that there were alternating uh... platforms of logs that were laid out as platforms for ten feet every ten feet and he went down as far as he could go himself and that's a lot of hard work he would break through these platforms they were every 10 feet. He went down, we're not sure how deeply, maybe 60 feet. That was as much as he could do that. That's a tremendous amount of work. And then for one man, or a, I think he had two guys who were helping him.
0: Three right, men going let's, down 60 feet. Let's pick up the story right after the break. We've got to go to break. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Our guest is Frank Joseph. Don't go away. Great song there from uh, Bad Company feel like making love. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm J.V. Johnson. Jason has the night off. He's a little under the weather. He'll be recovering, hopefully, back with us tomorrow night. By the way, tomorrow night we have a really interesting program as well. Uh, we'll be talking to a filmmaker, Rodney Asher. He's uh, created a documentary uh, called Room 237. And what it uh, that film does is it takes a look at Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, the film The Shining, from 1980, starring Jack Nicholson. And it looks at that film... In an effort to solve some of the mysteries, the theory is here that Stanley Kubrick put hints and clues in that film that tell the story of a faked moon landing, one in which that uh, Stanley Kubrick was, I don't know if it was hired or forced, but he was uh, compelled either way to uh, be the person to film the uh, moon landing footage. It's an interesting story. It's an interesting notion, and Rodney Asher will talk about that film, Room Two Thirty Seven. I actually watched The Shining earlier today. Uh, we also have a great show Wednesday night. Gary Michael Vazzy will be with us to talk about Black Eyed Kids and other paranormal phenomena. Great week of programs, of course, here on Beyond Reality Radio. Right now, we're talking with Frank Joseph about the Oak Island mystery. And Frank, you were talking about McGinnis and the fact that he basically by hand, with the help of a couple of guys. Uh, discovered what is now known as the money pit, started digging, uncovered these platforms every 10 feet, had to break through them manually, and uh, got down about as far as he could go.
1: Yeah, he got down between 30 or so, 30 to 60 feet, I suppose, and that's a lot for just three guys with pickaxes in their hands. And then uh, he was able to raise some money for uh, more professional help. But over the years, over the centuries, um, nobody found the... Uh, great treasure, allegedly down there, but they did find a lot of terrific clues, and those clues have been supplemented fantastically by the Lagina brothers. And as I've been studying this over the years, and especially in fairly recent times with all of their discoveries, uh, two significant um, patterns begin to develop, and this is again the hard evidence. The hard evidence shows two fundamental sets of finds, and these fines are lumped into two date parameters. The later date parameters are from about 1660, the early 1660s, to not quite 1700. The other significant dates are right around the turn of the 16th century. In other words, like about 1500 to about 1540. So we have these two date sets from about, say, 1660 to 1690, 1697, 1700, something like that. And then we have the earlier uh, set of dates from about 1500 to about 1530 or 40. Well, that's interesting. What, it, what was going on in history at those date parameters? Well, as it turns out, there were some very significant things that were happening. Before I tell you what those things are, historically, there are three immense treasures that have vanished over time, the biggest treasures that have vanished over time. And they all seem to pass through Oak Island. How about that? Hmm. Possibly. Possibly. The first big treasure was that of the Templars. I won't go through the whole history of the Templars, which is quite a checkered past, but the Templars had not just a treasure, treasure, but a treasury, because they were a nation unto themselves. And when they got proscribed in the worst possible way, burned at the stake, their leader, Jacques de Molay, was burned at the stake, they left for Scotland, and they took with them their treasury They were able to buy off part of the local people there to protect them so they could stay away from uh, their persecutors on the mainland. And the rest of their treasure vanished. It really existed. We don't know what happened to it. The other big treasures are there was a place called Morro Castle in Havana. And Morro Castle was more than a castle. It was a fortified city. And it was probably the greatest accumulation of wealth in all human history. The reason why was because in Havana was stored almost all of the gold that the Spanish robbed from the indigenous people of Peru and Mexico. All that money was put there, all that gold, incredible... Hundreds of today, which would be many billions of dollars worth of gold and jewels. And this is a fact, and again, this is not anything which is not known, it was in Moro Castle, as they refer to it, in Havana, Cuba. The other treasure, which was also immense, again, this gigantic treasure, was the ransom for the Inca Emperor. Atahualpa, the last of the real true Inca emperors, and he was captured by the Spanish who promised to let him go if he could fill a room with gold. He said he could. That treasure really existed. We know all the details about how it was obtained, who was in charge of it. The man in charge of it was an Inca general whose name translates as stony eye or rocky eye. All three of these treasures, the Templar treasure, the Cuban treasure, and the Inca treasure, were real and they completely vanished, have never been found. Not a trace of them have been found. Wow. And those dates, when those treasures disappear, correspond to those two main sets that are found on the artifacts that have been reliably dated, carbon dated and otherwise, at Oak Island. So we have to now look at those three missing treasures. Which one could it be? Or maybe it's more than one. And that's, that's what uh, is developing now. That's what is developing in, in my work is trying to decide which of these three treasures, and I believe that they did pass through, kind of Whether they're still there or not, I don't know. I don't have all the answers by any means, but I do have some persuasive evidence, and it's like connecting the dots. Mm -hmm. I don't like speculating unless it's based on uh, the facts. And that's what I'm doing now, accumulating the facts. So we can talk about uh, which are the most likely candidates. Yeah, for I was
0: just going to say, it, I mean, the story of the Knights Templar is pretty uh, easy to understand. Um, the other two treasures that you spoke of, uh, the Spanish gold uh, in Havana and the ransom for the Inca emperor. Uh do we know uh, we don't know where it went, but do we know what happened? Was it stolen? Was it carted off by uh the Spanish and then disappeared? Uh where where in the in the history of those two treasures does it does it disappear?
1: Okay, well, let's let's take the Inca one. That's the earliest one. When the Spanish overcame the Inca Empire. This is in the uh, late 1520s they captured the inca emperor in cuzco which was the capital of the inca empire and his name was atahualpa and atahualpa said look you people are so crazy for gold for us for the inca we don't we don't even we're not allowed to own gold i can't own it because it's considered a sacred metal we don't use it for money at all. It's beyond uh, any kind of material use. But you want it, okay, we'll give it to you. We've got lots of it. And so the Spanish set, now this is all verifiable stuff. This is not being made up or fantasy or anything. This, this our listeners can verify for themselves. Get on the Internet and they can find all this stuff. Just punch in the keyboard and the right words. Anyway, Atahualpa told the Spanish, says, look uh, how much gold you want and I'll get it to you. And uh, you can let me go. They say, hey, that's fine. You see this room here? This room is like about 17 feet long, It's so about 14 feet long, about 7 feet high. Uh, you fill this room with gold, and we'll let you go. He so says, no problem. So he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to call in my general now. And the general's name in English was, it said, Rocky Eye or Stony Eye. It probably had to do with his uh, commanding for uh, the, uh, appearance, you know, his behavior. And so Ottawa says, hey, look, Stony Eye, uh, I'm giving you an order. Uh, I want you to go to to Quito, Ecuador, because in Quito, Ecuador, that's where we store most of our gold. That's in it's in a sacred uh, temple or series of temples. And I want you to go down there and come back with enough gold to fill this room. So uh, General Stoney, Eye says, uh, I, I no problem. I'm, I'm taking off right now. So the Spanish say, OK, go, we agree to this. Now, it's not an easy journey, going from 14,000-foot elevation in the Andes and Cuzco all the way down across Peru and into Ecuador and Quito and getting all this gold together and coming back. It takes time. So the General stony eye takes off, and he's on his way down there. And the Spanish are getting more and more nervous the longer that this takes. And uh, they're saying, you know, your, your, your boy is gone for a long time. He better come back pretty soon. Uh, because we don't know how long before your natives get too restless, and there's only a couple hundred of us, and there's millions of you guys. You know, we've got uh, got guns and stuff, but, uh, (laughs) you know, there's more of your people than we have bullets, you know. So they're getting nervous. Meanwhile, General Stoney, he is accumulating all the gold in Ecuador. He's getting it all together. He's getting his caravan together to come back in time and to rescue his emperor, Emperor Atahualpa. Now, the Incas had a system of communication that was unbelievable. They had huge road, road uh, networks, networks of roads. And on, the, on these roads, and they were like sometimes they were paved or they're certainly walkable always, they had runners. So they could have information going from one end of their empire, which extended over hundreds and hundreds of miles, in a matter of hours sometimes, days at the most. Well, General Stony Eye has got his treasure together. He's just about to take off. He's leaving Quito, Ecuador. He's just leaving with his caravan when a runner, a messenger, arrives and says, guess what? The Spanish killed Atahualpa. They got too nervous. They got too scared. And they garroted him. In other words, they made him sit behind a post. They put a leather thong around his neck, and they strangled him to death. And, they saw, and so the the general says, Oh boy, they didn't wait. Meanwhile, now the Spanish, all this happens real fast now. The Spanish general in Ecuador he hears about that and he goes to General Stoney Eye and says, We want all that gold. General Stoney says, Why should I give you this stuff? You just killed my emperor. Well, a battle ensues, a major battle ensues. Emperor Stoney Eye he loses and the Spanish capture him. And they say, where is that gold? We'll let you go if you tell us where that gold is. And he says, no, you tried to perform the emperor. You're not going to let me go. And so they torture him. They torture him, lingering torture. And he never, General Stoney, I never discloses where that gold is. The Spanish go nuts. They virtually dismantle Ecuador. They certainly dismantle Quito looking for that gold. They go to a mountain where they think it's hid. They reduce that mountain to uh, hardly more than a hill, looking for the gold. They search for that gold for more than 50 years. They don't find a trace of it. Utterly gone. Doesn't appear anywhere. Actually, for more than 100 years, I think even to this day, people are still looking for the lost Inca treasure
0: which was was huge. It's completely disappeared. All right, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Frank Joseph. We're talking about what may be buried on Oak Island as the premiere of The Curse of Oak Island takes place tomorrow night or Tuesday night on their History Channel. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm J.V. Johnson. We'll be right back. Well, as I suspected, we're going to run out of time pretty quickly here. Uh, We're talking about The Curse of Oak Island or the mystery of Oak Island, if you will. It's a little island up off of the Nova Nova Scotia coast with Frank Joseph. Frank has been a guest on the program a couple of times. Frank, we're going to run out of time here pretty quickly. So I want to get to some, some, um, some nuts and bolts questions here. Uh, okay. Do you think the treasure, whatever it is, whichever of these theories that it turns out to ha- have been the correct theory, do you think it's still there?
1: I don't know. To be honest,ly I do not know.
0: And do you think that? Um, the Lagina brothers who have, I from, from what I understand and from what I've seen, have put more time, money, and effort into this search than any of the other treasure hunters prior to them or excavators prior to them. Do you think they're going to come up uh, with any kind of evidence that will, if not be the treasure itself, will at least solve the mystery for us as to what was there?
1: I think they'll contribute to it at the very least.
0: And do you think that we are going to ever solve the engineering riddles that seem to have plagued anybody who's tried to hunt this treasure? And and part B of that question is, does the technology of any of these particular groups that you outlined as could have been the the folks who hid treasure there, does it uh, rise to the level of what has been found with these uh, flood tunnels and and the platforms and the booby traps and all of that that has been uncovered in this uh, treasure pit?
1: Absolutely.
0: So that doesn't surprise you at all?
1: No. No. You have to understand that the Incas and their predecessors were expert miners, that they had developed mining techniques far beyond their own time. They were completely capable of building something like what we find at Oak Island. So were the British Marines, the ones that were involved in the war against Cuba. Um, They were also totally conversant in this sort of work, and uh, certainly so were the Templars who were noted as being uh, excellent engineers uh, and worked in subterranean formations. So all three of those cultures are outstanding in that direction.
0: Of the three groups, of the three uh, possible treasures that you outlined in your research, which do you think is Mm -hmm. the most likely to to either be there or have been there? The British, and, and that would have been which which of the treasures, the Knights Templar treasure?
1: No. Um, I I do not rule out the Knights Templar. I don't rule out the Incas, It's possible. But at this point, it appears that the uh, British who were engaged in their uh, siege of Moral Castle in Havana. Okay, they were the ones who Makes went sense. to Oak Island and had their treasure there.
0: Gotcha. Okay, um, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to give you a minute just to let us know, um, you know, what you've got on your plate. You're always working on something. Your list of works reads like a library. <laughs> you've done so oh. much, so much stuff. What have you got coming up?
1: Well, uh, I'm working, of course, on this article about Oak Island that I mentioned, but uh, Mm -hmm. at the same time I'm working on a new book, and this is about uh, great inventions of the ancient past. And it turns out that the civilizations of thousands of years ago came up with a technology which matches ours in many regards and even surpasses it in a number of different uh, specimens or examples and uh, that's the book that I'm working on now.
0: Well, we'd love to have you back on the program when that book is released. Also, if there's any major find at uh, Oak Island, uh, we'd love to have yeah. you comment on that as well.
1: Oh, well, I would uh, enjoy that very much. It's a work in progress, that's for sure.
0: And your website and where people can follow your work and get a hold of your books.
1: Well, they can best to get my recent book, uh, which talks about Oak Island. That's called Power Places. And that's at Amazon.com. If they want to reach me for anything or see some of my other work, they can go to ancientamerican.com.
0: Great. Frank, thanks so much for being uh, with us and agreeing to come on in short notice. We really appreciate it. It's a great conversation
1: grateful for the opportunity of having this great discussion with you
0: all right frank joseph again the website is ancientamerican.com you can get a whole bunch of information there or check out his books on amazon it's beyond reality radio when we come back after the break we're going to have our second guest of the evening that'll be brian clune and we're going to be talking about hauntings at universal studios Looking for our guest's book? Go to Amazon.com slash shop slash taps. Jason has the night off. He's a little under the weather. He's healing up and should be back with us tomorrow night. We've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, we want to thank, once again, Frank Joseph for being on with us. That was short notice. But we did want to talk about uh, Oak Island before the premiere of Season 6 of The Curse of Oak Island on History Channel tomorrow night. Jason and I both really enjoyed that program. And we love the mystery of Oak Island. The story itself is fascinating. But in the second part of our program tonight, we're going to have Brian Clune join us in just a minute. He's a historian for Planet Paranormal. And we're going to be talking about a book that he's written about, Haunted Universal Studios. Very interesting stuff coming up on the program. First, I'll remind you that tomorrow night is another interesting program. If you've seen the movie The Shining... If you've uh, paid attention at all to the conspiracy theories to talk about the moon landings and the fact that one of two things may or may not have happened, the theories go that the moon landing, one theory is that the moon landings themselves were just faked, never really happened. Another theory is that the landings themselves actually took place, but the footage that was seen live on television at that time was actually faked footage because. The U.S. government, particularly NASA, did not want um, a disaster to unfold on live national television, not even national, internationals, being watched around the world. And they feared that because it was such a risky endeavor that there might be something catastrophic, and they did not want the uh, chance of that being shown and being an American failure on international television. So either way, either of those theories... Uh, points to the fact that the footage that was seen on television of those moon landings and has been seen very often since uh, was faked. And one of the people that was said to have been capable of and possibly the person responsible for that footage is Stanley Kubrick. And he had a film uh, that you may or may not have heard of called The Shining, which is a great film in my estimation from 1980. And there's a theory that that film... It's not only a Stanley Kubrick classic, but it's also a film that uh, Kubrick used to put hints and clues uh, as to what ha- had actually happened and the fact that he was responsible for this faked Apollo footage. And the guest we've got on tomorrow night has uh, produced and uh, directed a documentary about that very topic. It's called Room 237. Our guest, his name will be uh, is Rodney Asher, and he'll be on tomorrow night. We'll be talking about all that. So a lot of great stuff coming up. Once again, I'll remind you that the website has the Beyond Reality Radio coffee mug on it. It makes a great Christmas gift. It makes a great Thanksgiving gift. In fact, you know what would be really cool is if you set your Thanksgiving table. All the uh, play settings have a Beyond Reality Radio coffee mug. That would give you some really great Thanksgiving conversation. We all know that sometimes those uh, family conversations can, can lag and kind of get boring, you know. So that would be a great conversation piece for your Thanksgiving dinner table. Anyway, let's, um, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to bring Brian Kloon into the program. He is a historian for Planet Paranormal. We're going to be talking about his most recent book that, is, uh, that talks about haunted Universal Studios. It's going to be a great discussion. It's Beyond Reality Radio. The phone lines will be open at 844-687-7669. Don't go away. We've got a lot more coming up. Welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. J.V. Johnson here with you tonight. We are about to be joined by Brian Clune. Brian is a historian for Planet Paranormal. He's written a book about haunted Universal Studios, among uh, other books, including Hollywood Obscura and California's Historic Haunts, Ghosts of the Queen Mary, and others. And uh, Brian, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's great to have you on with us tonight.
2: All right. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So the first question I have for you is how long have you had an interest in and been writing about uh, the paranormal?
2: Well, um, I've had an interest in the paranormal for quite a while, Um, but we started writing the books a few years ago. Um, It kind of started off as a way for us to keep track of some of our investigations, and we sort of expanded on it. to include a, a detailed history of the places that we'd go to, and then it just sort of expanded from there.
0: And are you a, would you consider yourself a paranormal investigator or a ghost hunter of sorts? or are you just a researcher?
2: Uh, no, uh, we're a paranormal investigative team as well as uh, you know writers.
0: And you've been to a bunch of places, obviously, by the list of places that you've written about. I'm assuming that you're West Coast based, um, Queen Mary being one of those.
2: Correct. Um, I live a very short distance away from the Queen Mary. And uh, we pretty much travel up and down the state um, trying to, you know, uh, we do home cases. We do historic locations, uh, kind of the, we run the whole gamut of uh Uh, different investigative uh, areas.
0: So when we talk about Universal Studios, um, I'm not familiar with how it's, you know, what that specifically means when it comes to California. Is that an amusement park? Is it a combination amusement park film studio? I mean, I know Universal Studios has been out there for a very long time before there were uh, amusement parks. So give us the lay of the land about what we're going to be talking about here.
2: Well, Universal Studios um, is actually the movie studio that pretty much started Hollywood. Uh, There there were other studios at the time that were producing movies, but when Carl Lemley came to California from the East Coast and started Universal Studios, it was Universal that pretty much put Hollywood on the landscape. Um, And Carl was kind of an interesting individual one of the things that he brought to the movie studios was he allowed people to come in and watch the movies being made he would actually encourage them to cheer for the heroes and boo the bad guys and that went on until the advent of uh talking pictures and once sound came into the picture they sort of had to pull back from allowing people to to come in and watch the movies. But it was basically Universal Studios that started Hollywood, I'm going to say.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm I'm, very, very familiar with with their early horror work because I'm a horror film fan. Obviously, Universal's stable of monsters in the 30s and 40s included uh, Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman and the Mummy, and the list goes on and on. That was one of their strong suits, but it wasn't the only thing they were doing.
2: It wasn't the only thing, but you you can't really talk about movie monsters without bringing Universal into it. And they sort of made the genre what it is today. Um, And one of the things that I always found kind of interesting about the uh, Universal monsters is they always kind of gave them a human aspect and almost made the audiences want to root for the monsters rather than just hate them, if that makes sense. Uh, Frankenstein's monster is kind of uh, one of the ones that I always mention because of the fact if you look at the way Mary Shelley wrote the Frankenstein's monster, what we see on Universal's uh, films is completely different, and they sort of made the Frankenstein monster almost childlike. To kind of give empathy towards the monster,
0: right? So, at, at what point um, does all of this translate into uh, what we would consider to be modern day hauntings? Uh, I mean, when do these reports start?
2: Well, uh, believe it or not, the the ghost activity at Universal Studios started almost right after the day Universal City opened back in 1915. Um, One of the aviators that Carl Lemley had hired to do a uh, stunt, the stunt went terribly wrong and the aviator himself ended up jumping out of his aircraft and died upon hitting the ground. And he's actually still seen today, but only if an effigy that Universal keeps on the back lot disappears. So if somebody moves the mannequin that they have made up to look like, uh, and the, the name of the aviator is Frank Stites, and if they move that effigy, Frank Stites' ghost is, is, comes back. And it's almost as if he just wants to be remembered.
0: We're no uh, strangers to um, a lot of these classic films that came out of Universal Studios from uh, you know the golden age of Hollywood, if you will. And a lot of the stars that were in those films had tragic lives, whether it was at the time they were living in tragedy or they died tragically there's a lot of those stories that came out of hollywood um i'm imagining that uh, some of those stars and some of those stories uh found their way into some type of haunting at universal studios
2: yeah there there are a few one of the uh one of the most known is lon chaney and even though he didn't have what you would call a tragic life um after he passed it seems like he went back to Soundstage 28, which is where um, they filmed Phantom of the Opera. And they actually ended up calling Soundstage 28 the Phantom Stage, specifically uh, because of the the movie itself. The uh, Opera House was actually built directly into the stage itself. So the Opera House was never uh, moved. Um, They had to Covered up when the soundstage was being used for other movies. And over the years, after Lon Chaney died, people would see him uh, walking around on the uh, catwalks. Uh, he would play tricks in the dressing rooms, and it, it was just a, a constant um, uh, appearance for him. And one of the things that I always kind of thought was rather odd is there were reports that stated that he was seen carrying around a chandelier. And I I kept thinking a chandelier, why, why would Lon Chaney be carrying around a chandelier? The only chandelier that he was associated with weighed like 600 pounds. So there's no way he would be carrying that around. And it's my assumption that the telling just grew bigger and bigger. And what, people actually were saying was a chandelier was most likely a candelabra. Um, right. And his character, Eric, the phantom uh, was known to carry around a, sh- uh, uh, a candelabra. And it, right. and at least that's my theory behind the whole
0: chandelier thing. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. And it also makes a lot of sense that Lon Chaney would be one of the spirits that would uh, be present in Universal Studios, given the amount of work he did there and what he went through to uh, make those roles so fantastic. He was known as as the man of a thousand faces, I think. And uh, not only that, but he was also known to do some incredibly... um, Dangerous and harmful things to his body to be able to accommodate the right. roles. Whether it was was doing things to his face to distort it, or or binding his legs up behind his you know the back of his legs so it looked like he was an amputee, and he would do these things routinely to be uh, what he became as a, an acting legend.
2: Correct. Well, uh, the the Phantom of the Opera makeup itself, he he did all of his own makeup. And if you ever look at a picture of his Eric uh, or Phantom, you'll notice that he has flared nostrils. And he did that by actually putting hooks in each one of his nostrils, running a, uh, a wire up around the bridge of his nose, around his eyebrows and tied them behind his ears. And then he yanked them to get that flare and then tied them off behind his neck. And, from what I understand is the entire time he was doing that part, he was in a lot of pain specifically from pulling his nostrils up. And that that just shows a dedication to, to his craft that uh, is just out of this world. Yeah,
0: and I believe he died, I think he died from lung cancer, if I remember correctly. Do you know the, the, um, the story there? I think that's what it was.
2: Yeah, if I remember correctly, um, I'm wondering if I'm getting that confused with his son, right. but I'd have to go back through the book and
0: uh, and check it, it out. It was some kind of illness like that, and maybe I might be getting it confused with Lon Chaney Jr. as well, who, who became an actor in his own right. He actually played uh, the Wolfman. Um, correct and uh, what Larry Talbot was that the name of the the of the character um, in later Universal films is Lon Chaney Jr. and after a while he dropped the Jr. and he was also just known as Lon Chaney into the fifties.
2: That's correct, and he he reprised the Wolfman role quite a few times, including in uh, Abbott and Costello Meet the Wolfman, which That's right. <laughs> the Abbott and Costello meets the monsters were kind of the demise of the whole. Uh, classic monster genre for universal.
0: Yeah, it kind of it kind of brought them all together in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way, took the seriousness out of those uh those franchises and made them Something to sport fun at. Although I, I, I happen to like those Abbott and Costello movies. As much as I love the, uh, the the original franchises themselves, those Abbott and Costello films I thought were pretty well done um, for what they were. So we have about a minute before we have to go to break. And we'll come back. We'll talk about more of these hauntings on Universal Studio. But before we do that, in this minute, where can people get a hold of your work and find out what you're up to?
2: Um. As as far as the books go, uh, you, you can check them out on Amazon. They're available in any of the bookstores. Um, and as far as our paranormal investigations, you can find us at uh, parainvestigations dot com, uh, which uh, we we have some of our evidence up on there, as well as queenmaryshadows.com, dot com, which has a great selection of um, evidence from uh, Queen Mary, not just ours but other investigators as well.
0: Terrific. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Brian Clune. He is a historian and a writer uh for Planet Paranormal. We're talking about Haunted Universal Studios among other things on Beyond Reality Radio here. So, if you want to join the conversation, feel free to give us a call at 844-687-7669. We'd love to have you join the conversation. I'm JV Johnson. This is Beyond Reality Radio. Welcome back to the show. It's Beyond Reality Radio. <laughs> it's uh it's a great night. We've got Brian Clune along with us. We're talking about uh, haunted Universal Studios. And uh, Brian, what was when was the first time that you started to hear these stories about uh, hauntings at whether it was Universal Studios or any of the uh, the the movie studios, but specifically Universal?
2: Uh believe it or not, for me, it was when I was a kid. Um uh, my mother used to take us to Universal Studios and Back, this actually started back in the 60s um, when they started doing the uh, Glamour Tram tours, as they were called, and they would basically just run you through the back lot. Uh, they would let you get off the tram, and you, you, they'd walk you through uh, Lucille Ball's dressing room, some of the other dressing rooms, uh, Prop Plaza and things like that. And I remember hearing about Lon Chaney was the first one, which is one of the reasons why I think I keep bringing him up because he's he's one of the first ones that I ever heard about as far as his ghost being at Universal Studios. And then after Lucille Ball passed away, I remember hearing stories about her coming back to her dressing room uh among other places. It seems like Lucy Kind of gets around uh, her. Her spirit's seen in a few different places, including Paramount Studios, which is where uh, Desi Lu Studio's originally started. Uh, they, uh, Lucy and Desi, owned the Hart Building, which is actually on the Paramount lot. So, uh, I actually remember hearing stories about ghosts when I was a kid from Universal Studios, and this is before they actually had uh, what. They have now, you know, an amusement park. Back then, it was just a right. studio tour.
0: What did the uh, What did the employees say? Did you get to talk to any of them about any of these stories?
2: Well, believe it or not, every one of the ghost stories in the book is directly from an employee of the park. So, so that was know, the it, source. Um,
0: so that's the source. Then
2: that's the source. Wow. Correct. Um, most of them didn't want to go on record. So uh, we don't use any employees names uh in the book, but every story is from one of the employees. There, there is one name that we do use and that is Sid Schultz. He actually wrote the foreword, and he was an employee. He actually played uh the deacon in the water world uh, show there. And, uh, I'm I'm extremely jealous because he actually did get to investigate Universal Studios wow. back in the day, and I I'm just extremely jealous about that because I would love to do that at least once.
0: What is um What is City Walk? I've seen some notes about City Walk. What is that, and why is it significant in this significant in this discussion?
2: Well, C- City Walk is actually outside of the park proper, so. People can just go to CityWalk whenever they want without having to worry about paying to get into the amusement park area. And CityWalk has um, a lot of stores, shops, restaurants. Uh, they used to have some nightclubs there. And when I was doing research for the book, I found it kind of unusual that CityWalk has quite a few ghosts itself. It's the newest section of Universal uh city. Uh it was built back in the nineties um kind of as a way to um bring more people to Universal City to make to help it compete with uh Magic Mountain and Disney and Knott's Berry Farm. And it just kind of surprised me to find out that there are are a few ghosts there as well. Um so you, you don't actually have to go into the park itself to have fun and maybe do a little bit of paranormal investigating yourself.
0: Have visitors to the parks, and I know you, you've, you've got your source material was primarily employees, but have visitors to the parks uh, been vocal about things they've seen, or is it primarily primarily just the employees that have seen this stuff?
2: Well, I can't really talk about uh, the guests. Um, again, Anything that I heard that one of the guests said came from an employee, and, you know, it, it's kind of hard to I, – I we did talk to a few people as we were doing some investigating um, and research, but a lot of them it, – it, it was their first time there, so they didn't have a whole lot to say, and a lot of them didn't really want to talk to us because they were, they were at the park, you know, there to have fun. So we did hear um, some stories from employees about certain things that happened to guests while they were there, but it's all secondhand.
0: Has anybody ever been hurt or scared to the point where they ran off screaming or had to leave the park or leave the studios uh, because they were so frightened?
2: Well, I I wouldn't say ran off screaming, uh, but there have been a couple employees uh, specifically from uh, the Halloween Horror Nights. Um, there there are a couple mazes in the back lot, and there have been a few employees uh, that were afraid of a uh, – like Frank Stites is one of them. He's the aviator. Um, when they found out that what they were seeing was most likely a ghost and not another one of the scare actors, um, they refuse to go back to work in in that particular area. Uh, there's another maze that is right by the uh, the mummy ride on the lower lot. And there's apparently a deceased scare actor that comes back into that maze to do his job. Uh, so he will come back and act as a scare actor while the maze is going on. And there have been employees that... that have just been in sheer amazement at how well this scare actor, that, and that's what they believe it is, um, is doing his job. And then they find out, well, there was no scare actor in that area where they were. So a couple of them have refused to go back in. But I haven't really heard of anybody you know, uh, leaving in fright.
0: All right. Let's um, let's see if we, um, let me just see if we can get a, a listener call or two in here. This is John in Florida who has a question. Hey, John, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thank you. Um, do you think they're attached to the location or a movie prop or the scene?
0: Oh, great question! You know, yeah, great question, John.
2: Well, there there are some of the spirits that we know are attached to the location. Lon Chaney is a good example of that. He was attached to Soundstage 28. And now that Soundstage 28 has been torn down, we're wondering if Lon Chaney may not be one of the ghosts in the Transformer ride area, which is actually part of what the old Soundstage 28 was. There is um, a little girl who haunts what is now The Simpsons ride, and it's said that she passed away when that ride was the Back to the Future ride. And she's still there. So whether she's attached to the ride or whether that's all she knows, we know that that's where she kind of hangs out is in the area where she passed away. Okay. But, um, you know, you get all of these death from, like, Disneyland where people get off their restraints and dying gone, you know, Space Mountain. I mean or from the rides?
0: They, they, they fall ride. out of the, Yeah, right. They get injured or die on the rides. Is that what you're saying, John?
2: Yeah. Could that also be what happened to that kid or Chain? Lon Chaney or an
0: actor. Well, Lon Chaney wouldn't have been on any of the rides. But what, what, are there any stories, uh, Brian, that uh, would be attributed to maybe a um, a guest who got injured or fell or died from the result of a ride?
2: Well, the little, the little girl um, passed away, but it wasn't the fault of Universal. Right. Uh, she apparently had an aneurysm. And the ride itself kind of caused the aneurysm to burst. Um, Universal, believe it or not, has a has an incredible safety record. There, there are there you know there, there are injuries now and then, but no, none have related uh, into death. So um, it's it's kind of hard to say whether that's any of the reason that some of the ghosts that are there are there we we believe that they're old employees of the studio not of the amusement park that are still basically there because that's that's what they loved uh as an actor you know might be just really into his craft a lot of the grips and camera people and things like that have that same dedication and a lot of them, after they passed, some of some of which were from uh, uh, accidents, you know, while filming. But they're still there, basically just going about the job that they loved and performing the, the the art or the craft that they they continue to love even after death.
0: John, thanks for the phone call. We appreciate you listening and calling in from Florida. Um, you know, one of the things that people have talked about often, and usually it's. It's uh, kind of debunked over the course of time. But are ghostly images that show up in films themselves, did you get to look at any of that in your in your research?
2: Um, none that I, I was aware of that came directly from Universal Studios. Um, and it, it wasn't part of our research because we hadn't really heard of any uh, specifically related to Universal Studios, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I have seen um some in the past there there's a um one that I'm aware of when they were doing some filming at the Amargosa Hotel quite a few years ago uh they were they were filming a horror film and um there there is a ghost that actually popped up into the film in the hotel itself um so yeah I'm I'm aware of that, but we didn't really delve into that while writing the book. Sounds like we hadn't a, really heard any stories about it.
0: Sounds like a nice follow up book, doesn't it? Yes, it does. <laughs> so, uh, if you had to pick one area of Universal Studios that would be the most haunted, what would you say it was? Probably
2: the lower lot. And one of the reasons I say that is not necessarily the amount of locations. But because the lower lot is one of the smaller areas of the park itself, and it seems to have a fairly high concentration of locations within this small little area, uh, you have the uh, Jurassic Outfitters, you have the uh, a studio store, which are and these two are right next to each other. You have what used to be the Ben and Jerry's ice cream uh, shop, which is now... Um, Uh, the studio scoop you have the mummy ride you have transformers so you have a whole bunch of locations in this one small area so i think that i would classify the lower lot as probably one of the most haunted spots in universal studios
0: now, we mentioned um, Lon Chaney. You mentioned Lucille Ball. You mentioned the aviator that lost his life on the lot. Um, are there any others that stick out to you that are just particularly interesting stories?
2: Uh, Alfred Hitchcock, I think, is it, it's one of my favorites. It seems that uh, Steven Spielberg inherited Alfred Hitchcock's old office, when uh, he he created Amblin Entertainment on Universal Studios. Mm -hmm. And as he was working, he started to get this feeling that somebody was looking over his shoulder and watching his work. And he came to the realization, he's like, well, wait a minute, I'm in Alfred Hitchcock's offices. We all know Alfred Hitchcock was kind of a hard person to deal with and liked to kibitz. So he came to the realization that it was Alfred Hitchcock that was kind of looking over his shoulder. And um, it got to the point where he just couldn't deal with it anymore, and he actually moved out of those offices just because he, he was tired of Alfred Hitchcock basically trying to you know tell
0: him what to do <laughs> well it seems like if if you're a director particularly if you're earlier in your career um and you had somebody like alfred hitchcock offering some uh, an, um, unsolicited advice it might be something he wanted to listen to i mean yeah, i want to take the advice yeah he was no slouch you know he's got he had quite a lot of success um well that, yeah, that's definitely. that's really interesting okay so we've got about a minute left here again i want uh, people to be able to find your books and keep track of of what other work you're doing i don't know if if you make appearances or you speak or you do any of those types of things as well?
2: Um, we do uh, a lot of uh, lectures at some of the, the colleges in California. And then every once in a while we'll, we will do a speaking engagement at a Paracon or one of the Halloween conventions um but other than that we you know we just like to uh we just like to write investigate and uh, try and have a good time and if you don't mind uh, in the short time we have i just need to uh, give a shout out to my co-author bob davis um i should have mentioned him at the very beginning of the show but um bob wanted to be on the show with us tonight but he had a, uh other things uh that he had to do but i just want to give a shout out to my co-author bob
0: davis oh yeah of uh, course yeah, of course. I wish he was here. Yeah. Now you've got uh, three websites too that I have listed anyway. Parainvestigations.com, QueenMaryShadows.com, dot com, and PlanetParanormal dot com. You work with all of all three of those.
2: Correct. Uh, uh, ParaInvestigations is our team website. Uh, Queen Mary Shadows is uh, naturally just all Queen Mary um, uh, uh, stuff. Uh, in, in evidence and things like that and then planetparanormal.com is our archived radio uh, show website where you can go and listen to uh, different uh, paranormal uh, radio shows from the past uh, UFOs ghosts you name it we have it on there
0: awesome hey Brian thank you so much for joining us it's a fascinating discussion and next book you have a, have out, make sure you contact us. We'd love to have you back on.
2: I definitely will. And I I, I just want to thank you for having me again. It, it was absolutely fantastic. Thank
0: you so much. Okay, once again, it's Brian Clune and the book that we were talking about is Haunted Universal Studios. We're going to take a break. We'll come back and wrap things up. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm J.V. Johnson. Don't go away. All right, welcome back to the show. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm J.V. Thanks for being here tonight. Jason was um, off sick, but he will should be back with us tomorrow night. We've got a great show tomorrow night, talking with Rodney Asher, who is a filmmaker maker whose uh, debut was the uh, documentary Room 237, which tooks, takes a look at uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And it looks at it and it talks about some clues and some hints that Kubrick left in that film to indicate that he was involved in a bit of a conspiracy. And we'll let you uh, listen to the program to figure out what that's all about. But that's tomorrow night's program. And then on Wednesday, Gary Michael Vazzi will be with us and we'll talk about black-eyed kids and other paranormal phenomena. A lot coming up. Uh, we got the shark with you Thursday night because I'm on my way to Hudson, Ohio for uh, Dark Xmas. If you want to find out more information about that event, I'll be there with Rebecca Foster. Uh, just go to darkx-mas.com. You'll see there's a bunch of celebrities, um, including Rebecca and I, will be there. We're doing a panel and a psychic gallery reading, I believe, on Saturday at uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, something like that. Anyway, check it out on the website. Thanks for being here. We'll check you all out tomorrow night. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Have a great night.